Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is someone we claim she passed through Emory on her way to fame and glory. Dr. Michelle <laughs> Ferrier is with us today, former member of, I'll call it my department back in the day in mass communications. And we're interviewing Michelle today because she's just won, oh, three silver awards in an international communication. Gee, congratulations. Welcome to this conversation, Michelle. Great to see you again, Teresa, and be on the air with you and share a little bit about the, this crazy journey that I've been on. Since you have been on a crazy journey. And I mean, okay, I just want to set the stage here a little bit. The International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, the Anthem Awards, 2,500 entries, 36 countries, I read about it in The Hollywood Reporter. Columbia Journalism Review had an article about it. You are the founder of Trollbusters, and Trollbusters won this award. What is Trollbusters? Trollbusters is just as the name suggests, Teresa. It really was an effort um, almost uh, over 10 years ago to... Um, look at what was happening online, look at uh, the kind of uh, violence and threats that were being lobbed online and in digital spaces, and looking at what was happening with our social media. And uh, in 2015, basically developed Trollbusters to try and solve for um, individual journalists and the, and the threats that we saw happening to them online and help them persist and stay online and tell the stories that they wanted to tell. Now, this started from something that was not online. This had its origin in an experience you had when you were a columnist for the Dayton Beach News Journal after you left Emory. So right. what happened and how did it get turned into this internationally recognized organization? Well, some of the work um, when I left Emory, I went into uh, newspapers, particularly, and the newspaper business. And this was right about the time that newspapers were looking at going online, publishing uh, news websites, um, building um, those online platforms and places for them to disseminate news, as well as to um, bring their communities together. So we were developing um, online content portals as well as online connection portals with our communities. And I was doing work at the Daytona Beach News Journal as a columnist and the first columnist of color uh, at the newspaper. And the stories that I wrote were very personal stories about my children, my life, being a mother growing up as an African-American woman in a Southern town and just what that life was like on a daily basis. And those stories, those very intimate stories uh, were very disturbing to certain people because um, they were connecting with my audiences. They were really um, drawing them into a conversation about race, about motherhood, about femininity, about being a woman, um, and all of that entails um, in today's society. And particularly in a society where we were also navigating this new online space and trying to connect with people in those spaces. And so um, I received a series of physical letters. I received uh, emails as well 
Um, it was before really I had gone on social media and we were using social media, but we had definitely developed our own online news sites as well as our own online communities. And it was through those portals as well as through traditional mail that I received threats and hate mail um, because of the color of my skin. Give us an example, Michelle. It, it amazes me. I should say Dr. Ferrier, but that, <laughs> that you write just about your life and it engenders such hate. What kind of things were people saying to you? Um, basically, uh, this particular letter writer, and I received, as I said, hate mail from a variety of places and a variety of sources, but um, ultimately what drove me from the newsroom was a particular letter writer that wrote um, missives to me in the mail. So I received pages sometimes of letters, manifestos about there's going to be a race war, there's going to be a war against you and people. Uh, we're coming after you. Sometimes they would uh, highlight um, if it, the topic was something perhaps of a racial nature, um, or even if it was me talking about my kids, teaching them how to drive. Um, the letter writer really was trying to keep me from writing and connecting with my audience in the ways that my writing was connecting with them. And so they would write threats about uh, killing Black people, hanging Black people, um, and uh, basically trying to eliminate my voice from the newspaper as well as from the online spaces where I was beginning to do my work. Okay, so my question is, I mean, we we tolerate all kinds of ugliness in this society, but when you get into threats and harassment, that's okay. illegal. Don't, don't they go hunt, hunt that person down and talk to them and get them to stop it? Unfortunately, Teresa, fortunately, un unfortunately, we have something in the U.S. called the First Amendment. And the First Amendment um, allows for free speech. And that free speech um, oftentimes comes right up against the line of the law and in terms of what the law will prosecute. And because of the research that I've done in this area and the work I've done on social media and online spaces, um, we really have a very sophisticated audience that knows what they can get away with and they know how to operate with impunity. And so they will write up to the letter of the law. They will use and disguise their identity to make it difficult for you to find out who and where the uh, material is coming from. They will use coordinated activity to um, have you receive threats from a variety of different platforms, from different places, from different people. And they'll use that to create fear and intimidation to try and get people to shut up, to leave the job, um, as I did after years of this kind of threats and abuse. Um, I finally did leave my job as a columnist because the threats became very personal. Um, they became um, threats against my family. And um, unfortunately, um, even with police protection and security and other measures that I tried to put in place, um, I really didn't want my children to grow up in an environment where they were in fear for their life when they stepped outside. Our okay, front. I want to press you on this one more time, because mm -hmm. I do understand and appreciate free speech, despite its ugliness. Yes. But again, 
threats and harassment are not legal. So did the police ever go try to find this person to try to say you can be prosecuted for threatening people? Um, uh, Teresa, um, unfortunately, I think the laws in this country, the laws that protect social media platforms, Section 230 of our laws protect the platform themselves. Uh, and the perpetrators from impunity against these kinds of behaviors. So the platforms are really held uh, not liable for this behavior. As I said, there's anonymous actors, as well as even people who use their real names who are going to troll people online. Um, Unfortunately, again, it is writing up to the letter of the law, the challenges of being able to um, have law enforcement take the threats that you're receiving seriously. Um, I was told, and I know many journalists that I've worked with when they have gone to the police or they've gone to management with these types of threats, they've been told to ignore it, not to worry about it, to just you know let it go and this too shall pass. And unfortunately, I think uh, both the police as well as management and even some journalists themselves don't understand how the internet has been weaponized to be able to uh, target journalists, other uh, public figures and other people to destroy their voice online, to destroy their influence and to ultimately silence them from the work that they're doing. So here you are boxed in, You're, you're getting the lay of the land. You're not finding a way to make it stop. It's disturbing you more and more. And so somehow along the way, somewhere, you come up with the idea of let's do something online. Your slogan is fighting cyberbullying with love. (laughs) And then you have several steps like outing the trolls. Tell us the process. Right. So um, actually, Teresa, some of the early work, when, when I became frustrated with the lack of action from law enforcement, from media management, even from some of the professional organizations for journalists who were not talking about these kinds of harms. Typically what we would talk about would be hazardous environment training, being a a wartime correspondent and reporter from the front lines. I don't think uh, our journalism profession recognized that the front lines were coming to our doorstep and that the violence was moving um, in these social spaces, in these online spaces, into offline spaces and into physical violence as well. And so trying to get the attention and um, of law enforcement, um, including uh, the CIA, the FBI, and other federal agencies to really look at this issue. Um, we know the challenges that they've had in being able to even manage the kinds of misinformation and disinformation that we've seen come up over the past five years with the presidential election here in the United States, and then the growing um, voter suppression efforts, as well as anti-vax and now anti-war or pro-war efforts that are being uh, promulgated online by people who are trying to change the narrative. They're trying to uh, ensure their own power and the narratives that they're trying to promote. And so I, uh, early on, when I recognized that the laws and law enforcement were not going to protect me from these kinds of threats and violence, I began to look at uh, tactics and ways we could use technologies to begin to do the digital forensics work to identify anonymous perpetrators, 
to identify the agencies and targets of attack, the groups, um, whether they be misogynistic incels or white supremacists or terrorist groups, domestic terrorist organizations, um, other different types of, of um, organizations that are attempting to um, subvert uh, diverse stories online. And so I began to use technologies to be able to um, begin to monitor those social spaces, begin to look for and track uh, the types of racial and uh, race and hate-based as well as violence-based um, uh, threats that were coming across and begin to look at and monitor uh, the ways in which journalists themselves as a profession were being targeted through a variety of different technological tools, um, whether it be social media, whether it be through uh, uh, email, or even through the comment section in our own uh, platforms that we create for news and community. Let me interrupt just a second to remind listeners that my guest today is Dr. Michelle Ferrier, and the organization that she founded called Trollbusters has just won three major international awards called the Anthem Awards. You had just finished saying that you found that you were finding a way to track the online perpetrators. I know that you can't legally go say to um, an internet service provider, tell me who this is, they won't tell you. Who are you tracking and how are you tracking them? As I mentioned earlier, Teresa, some of these bad actors may work anonymously, whether it's out of a Russian or troll farm, some other kind of automated bot farm or other kind of coordinated activity. We, we've been able to, in the six years since Trollbusters began, really dive into using some network analysis as well as digital ethnographic work to dive into these communities and understand not only, not only where they are, but who they are, how they operate, what their, basically what their modus operandi is, what their goals are, and attempt to um, begin to describe this landscape and do it basically um, a, a diagram of this landscape so that journalists as well as other public figures can understand that uh, this coordinated activity is uh, amplifying um, the tools of code content and conduit on the web is being amplified by these groups and they're using those three vectors of attack using the algorithms using content and visual content that that subverts the uh, filters and uh, other text filters that we may put putting in place and other blocking tools. And they're also subverting uh, the conduits in which people are getting information by seeding misinformation and disinformation, as well as creating imposter websites of news organizations and enrolling community members in a false narrative of what's happening in the world. Can you give an example of something that you found, some group that you found, some pattern that you found where you just went, aha, you suckers, I got you now. I see who you are. I see where you are. Yeah, there's, there really is. Um, Trollbusters, the incarnation that is Trollbusters now was born out of um, a kind of a nexus of experiences that happened in, in and around 2014, 2015. One was Gamergate, which was an online attack 
on female gamers against a misogynistic element inside the gaming industry um, and targeted those women with coordinated technological bombardment, uh, counter narratives, material put online to destroy their reputation and um, violent threats, including swatting, which is when uh, doxing, which is when somebody sends out personal information about your home address or where you work or where your children go to school or swatting, which is when they get that information and call law enforcement, suggesting that there's some criminal activity happening in your home. And swatting is when they call the SWAT teams to your home for no reason. And you are terrorized in the moment by the, uh, basically the uh, attack by the police. And we began to look at these behaviors and these groups, whether they're incels, the involuntarily celibate, the misogynistic element that is responsible for a lot of the gender-based violence, which um, is a, a, comes of a different flavor than it does for our male journalists and even some of the male, uh, the female public figures that we've seen targeted online. The gender-based violence addresses uh, women in a very uh, sexual and intimate nature, usually involves very violent, very sexually violent imagery or suggestions. Also, it, those attacks tend to target their intimate relationships, including their children and family, in order to intimidate the women from continuing the lines of investigation or the work that they're doing um, to try and intimidate them into silence. So, and when you have found these groups, identified the, these patterns, then what happens? Do you, you can only block them. I mean, you're not going to have any more luck prosecuting them than you were having before, I'm guessing. Right. I think in terms of the law, Teresa, one of the things, um, as I mentioned, Section 230 earlier, are federal laws that are currently in place that protect the platforms from impunity of the actions of their users really has been under investigation for the past two years, at least very intensively by our Congress in looking at what are the ways in which the platforms themselves are creating a hostile environment for people. And I think um, the look into uh, Russian misinformation and disinformation and the voter disenfranchisement that happened here in the United States um, has really shown a light on the ways in which um, the algorithms, the code and the conduits of these platforms have very much been built in a way to maximize um, maximize conflict, maximize pain, and uh, amplify uh, the kind of hostile and violent work and uh, what environment for people online that uh, keeps them keeps them uh, keeps them on their toes and keeps them fearful. And Are you saying that the they plan. they really don't have consequences once you find these? Unfortunately, um, it is very difficult, even with our criminal cyberstalking laws, um, our civil defamation and libel laws, um, the legal system is really very prohibitive for anyone who is not a celebrity, anyone who is not a broadcast anchor, um, for individuals, for uh, local journalists, for ordinary citizens who find themselves thrust into the limelight. 
Um, there really is very little recourse through the legal system um, because the costs are just astronomical. Um, for example, uh, a defamation or a libel suit and you go to court to try and sue the publication as well as the author of that particular piece, the blog perhaps, those lawsuits start at about $50,000 and go up from right. there to be able to subpoena the platforms, to be able to get information uh, about postings and the activity of the users, to be able to subpoena the cell phone companies and cell phone records, as well as email providers. All of that forensics work um, typically happens afterwards because these actors are, for the most part, operating anonymously or uh, operating under cover of darkness in ways that require more sophisticated digital forensics work. You know, the only thing worse than this messy, horrible, vile environment that we live in and work in online is to have it all shut down and be in a situation where we're not free to say ugly things that we might want to say. I feel like that what I'm hearing from you is that a lot of journalists may have just come to accept that they've got to take it. I'm thinking of Leonard Pitts. I read his column, an African-American guy talks about race a lot. Occasionally, he will refer to the hate mail that he gets, the threats that he gets. I wonder if it happens more with Black women than it does with Black men. I'm wondering if the old guard accepts it more than the new guard, but it seems like a lot of it is just deal with it. Right, and I think one of the things that we've done with Trollbusters, so besides working with individual journalists to help them when they're under attack, to look at and help them gather evidence, to identify the perpetrators if we're able to, to help them collect and have conversations with law enforcement or with management to help put in place supports necessary. Um, as I mentioned, sometimes the nature of these attacks are, especially for journalists, are consistent, persistent, across platform, violent, and ongoing. And so this behavior, you described Leonard Pitts, I know him very well. And actually he was one of the people I spoke with nearly 10 years ago as a columnist to ask him about his experiences and how he dealt with the kind of hate mail that he received. Um, what we've been doing is beginning to identify these tactics that are used and help people understand that larger environment and also understand the tactics for digital resilience. Um, we call ourselves online pest control for journalists, but really um, there's very little you can do to control that kind of environment when you have uh, platforms who have created this environment that's difficult for you as an, a user to be able to manipulate. One of the things that we do is not only help train people around protection and digital security, helping them secure their devices, making sure that they're doing their work in a way that's securing not only the data, but the sources that they're connecting with so that they don't put their sources at risk for the reporting that they're doing. There are ripple effects to the kinds of threats and the environment that journalists are now operating in. And so the work that we're doing around Trollbusters is really looking holistically at how we do journalism in a digital age and helping people understand the ways through, through content, 
and counter narratives, both visual and textual, through multi-platform performance and actions that um, spread your word and disperse it um, beyond the brand platform, perhaps, that you might be publishing to. It would help people recover from these kinds of attacks when they happen by helping them move through the choices and discerning what is the pathway that I want to take to get relief from myself. Michelle, just because Leonard Pitts is in our area newspaper, what did he say about how he handles it? Um, basically, one of the things that we do fight against is our own professional culture that says you must be doing something right if people are critiquing you or coming after you. Um, and I think that message um, has been ingrained, unfortunately, in some of the old guard of journalism, big J journalism, and the idea that you should just suffer these slings and arrows from the audience. Unfortunately, they are negating the nature of these threats and the reality that these threats are not virtual. They do migrate into physical space, into real life with real life dangerous consequences like we saw with Jamal Khashoggi that we've seen with local reporters doing a stand-up on the street and being attacked by viewers because of the reporting that they're doing around vaccines or elections or politics, et cetera. So we've seen an environment created online that has fostered uh, this offline activity that has made the profession a bit more challenging and dangerous. And one of the things that we try and do is help educate the whole journalist um, and understanding how to do their work and how to do that work powerfully in these digital spaces um, and be able to continue to do that work in the face of these kinds of attacks because they're not going away. And there is very little way at this point um, that uh, the laws and policies that are in place, at least here in the United States, um, will allow us to be able to go after them. Well, you certainly hit a nerve and it has certainly resonated. And this international award, what did that mean to you? Three silver awards from uh, the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. Other winners, Trevor Noah, the 1619 Project. I mean, you're up there in the stratosphere what did this do to your head? Is it just like hard to get in the car now? Oh, you know, Teresa. <laughs> it was, I, I, it was, um, it was, I think, validation for the very deep work that we have been doing around really trying to engage the whole journalist um, in the work that we do. Um, the Anthem Awards is a brand new award competition this year, as you mentioned, an international competition designed to help elevate and amplify people who are doing work in the impact industry, those that are helping to uh, bring awareness through public relations projects, through other kinds of public projects. Um, to give voice to issues and things like that. And so the Anthem Awards were just a wonderful kind of acknowledgement of, of the hard work that we've been doing uh, globally to be able to secure freedom of the press around the globe. All right. Well, I've got to hearken back to your days at Emory & Henry before we close out. But you started creating things from the time I knew you. There was an organization that was initiated by Michelle Ferrier on 9-11, 
2001, when the world is crashing down, or New York is, and Michelle Ferrier in the Department of Mass Communications at Emory & Henry says, do you remember what you said? Oh, we, we, we had to get the word out. We had to help students who were at school at the beginning of their school term, many of whom had family and friends in DC, Pennsylvania, New York, and other places that were affected by the activities that unfolded on 9-11. And we were desperate to get good information to our community about what's going on. And we said, let's create an online newspaper. Let's just use the tools that we learned through uh, the courses that I taught and uh, develop EHC Wired, which was one of the very first online, totally online independent news, uh, news sites in the country. Yes, yes, it was. Yes, it was. Created, initiated by Michelle Ferrier, my guest today. Thank you so much, Michelle Ferrier, for being with us. Congratulations on your wonderful award. Teresa, thank you so much. Great to hear from the ENH community at Emory. Great to see you guys. Hope to see you in person soon. And thanks above all to the listeners. Thanks for tuning in to 90.7. This conversation here on 90.7, Wednesdays at 6, Sundays at 2. See you next time.